ancient, ancient way session, 2016. And depending upon how you count it, the 10th talk, I always start from the very first night. Dan Brown, the, <coughs> the uh, Tibetan Buddhist Bun teacher, he always talks about pointing out, that the pointing out way is what he calls his particular tradition. And he says it's like a tour guide. If you go to the Ajanta or Laura Caves or you go to the Taj Mahal, at those places there are dynasties of tour guides. People who have been uh, explaining those sites for probably hundreds of years, maybe even thousands, I don't know. <clears throat> it becomes a career. So father to son, father to son, what about daughters? But if you go to those places, if you go to the Taj Mahal and you walk alone and you might see a big empty room in, <clears throat> in the palace with an elevated stone box, about six by six. And you look at it and say, oh, that's interesting. I know what that's about. If, on the other hand, you have a tour guide who's actually walking around and pointing things out and says, you know, this, this was the royal bedroom. And that was the place where the bed was. And all around this was moving water. So in the hot heat of the summer, there was a flow of water through this entire room so that the royal bedchamber was cool and refreshing in the heat of the Indian summer. Well, when you hear that, it makes it a lot more interesting than just seeing a, <clears throat> a box in a room. Well, in a way, I think that's part of what we do when we do talks here. We're basically a tour guide of Sishin trying to point out different things and say, oh, look at this. Oh, look at that. And if we, if we see something, oh, maybe we'll, we'll actually take note of it and think, oh, gee. So <clears throat> many people in this room, if not all of the people in this room, have had interesting experiences. And you know, when we have an experience, <clears throat> we tend to think, well, OK, you know, been there, done that. But sometimes, if it's pointed out, this is actually a pretty unusual experience. Well, this actually is a fairly profound experience. This actually is an experience that's very hard to come by. This actually is not an experience that you ca encounter casually. And somehow, by pointing out the nature of these things, it kind of we, we catches our attention a little bit. Makes us feel, oh, gee, maybe there's something important going on here. So some of these are quite obvious, and we, we talk about it, and they've been pointed out many times. The first, <clears throat> the first point is everybody in this room is a strong person. Everybody in this room, almost, is stronger than they think they are, thought they were. And as I pointed out a couple of days ago, you know, the number of people who actually could endure and do this of their own volition, of their own decision, and actually stay, stay the course is very few. It takes an inner strength. There are obviously people who have 
stronger bodies than most of us. But to have the inner strength to be able to do a retreat like this is unusual. It needs to be noted. And for some people who are just getting started, who don't really understand their own capacity, to be able to find out that, oh yeah, I really am so much stronger than I ever thought I was, is a very important evolutionary and maturational insight. So our capacity to endure, our capacity to stay the course, is a very important capacity to understand. If we're going to go to school, we're going to go on a pilgrimage, <clears throat> we're going to start launch a career, we're going to raise a family, our capacity to endure all the vicissitudes and challenges that come up, it's very important to have some confidence in our capacity to endure. Otherwise, we wouldn't really start the journey. Secondly, or thirdly, it's important to realize that this is, that we have a willpower. That everybody in this room has a will, has a strength of will. That is obvious, just because we've had been able to, to do this and endure. There's a strength of will, a strength of mind, a strength of decision, which becomes obvious as you live and work with people. So the strength of will that we exhibit, practice, um, exemplify in Sashen may not look the same as if we're out, you know, growing a garden, raising a family, but the strength of will required to completely engage in our life translates 100%. Takes a strength of will and purpose to do a Sashen. Takes a strength of will and purpose to raise a family. It takes a strength of will and purpose to grow a garden. It takes a strength of will and purpose. So everybody here has more willpower than we think, even those who think we have a lot. Second, third, fourth, fifth, we have the ability to focus. So everybody over the course of years comes into session and says, oh, I can't focus. Oh, my mind is so crazy. Oh, my mind is just going all over the place. Oh. And over the course of, of the session, we learn we can focus more than we thought. Now, sometimes there are periods when, when our intense, well-knitted-together life begins to unravel a little bit, and it doesn't look very focused. That's OK. But at the same time, the ability for most people to actually put their mind where they want to and hold it they don't understand their capacity. Of course, you know, some people do. I mean, that's part of how we, we've become mature, successful people in our own realms. So we have the capacity to focus. And in that focus, we have the capacity to calm our mind down, to, to, clear, to clarify our view. Everyone in this room has a stability and a calmness and equanimity and a clarity of view more than they had when they came in. They can get cleaned up. Now, again, you know, I'm drawing big, big brush strokes here. 
Because sometimes as we sit and we focus and we're, we're doing Sushin, the garbage that has been in there for a long time bubbles up to the surface. Old things that we haven't looked at, processed, old things that we would pretend we didn't, have, didn't know, old rigid ideas and ways of being begin to crack up. And of course, there's some detritus there. There's some, there's some flotsam and jetsam that begins to float to the surface. That's the way it is. So it may not look so clear at first, but I guarantee everybody who continues finds a clarity of mind, a spaciousness of mind, <clears throat> and unlike the ocean, that flotsam and jetsam begins to disappear. Next, we all learn that stories are just stories. We've told ourselves innumerable stories about who we are and who we think we are and how the world works. And if we hold those stories up to light, as people have done throughout the session, we find there are actually all sorts of holes punched into them. They're actually they're, they're, they're more fuzzy sets than they are true reality. <clears throat> they're not concrete things that we think, I am da-da-da-da-da. And we actually begin looking at it and find, oh, well, maybe it's not quite the way it is. So a classic, classic thing that encounter, everybody encounters <coughs> is, I'm tired. Oh, I'm so tired. Oh, I can't go out on nuclear. I'm exhausted. Everybody here has encountered that in one form or another. And then we ask, well, OK, let's look at that. Is your knee tired? Is your hand? Is your hand tired? Elbow tired? Shoulder tired? Chest tired? Back tired? Neck tired? Forehead tired? Ears tired? Which parts of you actually are tired? Well, my eyes are heavy. Okay. Okay. What else? Well, I have trouble holding my head up. Okay. So, want to make a story about that? Okay. We find that everything that we're 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 kind of crystallizing into an I am a is actually full of holes. And it doesn't mean that there's not such a thing as fatigue and that we're not tired, of course. It doesn't mean we need to take care of ourselves, of course. On the other hand, the story about it, the story which usually involves our being smaller and limited, the story usually involves our incapacity is not usually true. So what if you're tired? Who cares? You know? In the course of an adult life, how many times have you been tired? You have a new baby and you're exhausted. You go to school and you're exhausted. You go to session, you're tired. Who cares? You know? Temporary state. You know, I go on a trek out in the mountains, and you're walking, walking, walking. You go on a long bike tour, and you're just exhausted. So what? You know, if you keep going, if you can't keep going, if you do keep going, if you can't keep going, you stop and rest. But the story about it, we find as we do Sushin, the story, the fixed idea, doesn't carry much weight. And of course, some people have a story that I'm a miserable failure. Some people have a story that I'm the greatest human being on earth. Some people have a story of, you know, we all have our own version of those stories. 
Well, don't worry about them. <laughs> Relax. We're all part of an, an unfolding evolution. And the truth is, of course, always richer, more intricate, more, got more texture to it than we think. In our, out of our fear, out of our anxiety, we try to crystallize things into saying, oh, this is the way it is. I am right. This is the way I am. We try to crystallize it so that we don't feel anxious. But as we begin to practice more and more, and as we open our mind more and more, we find the world is filled with not knowing. The world is filled with texture that no, very rarely are things just completely right and wrong. Rarely are things completely bipolar in that way. We see that during Sushen. I may be an idiot, but I'm not always an idiot. You know? It's okay. Next, we can learn, we learn from every experience. <clears throat> if anything happens, we come to Sushen and we all have a plethora of experiences. We all <clears throat> have innumerable states of mind that we encounter and an ache here and a pain there and a cramp here and a you know, worrisome there, whatever. It's all grist for the mill of wisdom. For younger people, grist was just meant any kind of grain that you put into a mill that you ground up to make into flour. So grist for the mill was the, was the essence of what a mill was for. It's the part and parcel of a mill is the grist. So everything is grist for the mill of wisdom. Nothing is wasted. And as we've said over and over again, the person that you are right now is the result of every single stupid thing you've done in your entire life. And wise thing. And inadequate thing. And skillful thing. Everything is grist for the mill. So every obstacle <clears throat> not only is an obstacle, but it also is an, is an opportunity to learn. So think of gravity. You know, gravity, the attraction that massive objects have for less massive objects, whatever that energy is. Well, we've gotten used to not eating spaghetti floating in the air. <clears throat> we've gotten used to spaghetti falling to plates and having to take muscle to raise the spaghetti up. It's not an obstacle. It's just the way it is. You know? If we were to think gravity is a big obstacle, I should be able to eat my spaghetti floating in the air and just suck it in then, you know, it's ridiculous. We don't object to gravity. But if we're born, we're going to die, just as, just as true as gravity is. If we're born, things are going to hurt, just as true as gravity. Why we don't object to gravity? Why should we object to the body falling apart? Exactly the same thing. Just the way things are made, you know? The way things are unmade. 
So whatever we encounter is simply the unfolding of this natural process. The natural process of gravity, the natural process of birth, old age, and death, the natural process of getting sick, the natural process of having pain in the body. You've got a body, it has pain. The Dalai Lama one, was saying at one point that he wasn't feeling so well, he had a bad headache. And somebody said, oh, you're the Dalai Lama? Gets a headache? How could you get a headache? He said, if you got one of these, it's going to hurt. So there's nothing that is a problem on the way to wisdom. Every difficulty softens our heart, unless we get afraid and become frozen. Another thing we all learn and all notice is that everybody, since everybody, each person's bodily sensations, good, bad, or indifferent, always change. Oh yeah, I've got a bad pain in my back right now. Well, you know, it's present right now, and how long will it be present? It will disappear. If there's something you can do about it, you do it. If there's nothing you can do about it, you let it be. Everything that comes up, if there's something you can do about it, if you need to respond to it, respond to it. Do what you need to do. If there's nothing you can do about it, forget it. Just accept it. So we see that over and over in Sushen. We see this as we sit each hour, <clears throat> each day. Body sensations are always present. Sometimes we stretch and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we put a cushion under our knee and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we respond, sometimes we just accept. It's going to change regardless. We want to be skillful. We don't, have to do, we don't have to be skillful. We don't have to worry about everything. Every sensation is only temporary. We see that over and over again. Another thing that we all see in Sushin is no matter how confused, no matter how hopeless, no matter how befuddled, no matter how um, discombobulated our state of mind is, we can always come back to the present moment. We can always come back to this rock, not rock, rock solid, but this direct experience of our own body right here, right now. All of you who've worked with people with mental health issues and have seen somebody completely freaking out and just losing it, what do you do? You say, come, pay attention to your breath, feel your feet, feel your body, settle down into what's right here, right now. That's the place of fundamentally of no problems. And so we've learned that. We've seen that. We've all done that over and over again in different ways. Another thing that we observe when we come to Sishen, we observe in spiritual practice, <clears throat> we observe any time that we actually look directly at the nature of mind, we look directly at the nature of, of I, me, and my, something that we've everybody has done to one degree or another, that we look in and we say, okay, who is the one? You know, I'm so cool. Who is the one? So cool. I know this. Who is the one who knows? We all have the direct experience of unfindability. Not that it doesn't exist. It's just unfindable. We all have that experience. That is a profound experience. The unfindability of this 
thing that we thought we were for so long, that somehow our true nature is larger than our rational mind being able to pin it down, and our rational mind saying, oh, there it is. The unfindability, the great mystery that we are, is something we all can observe directly. And of course, as I've said to many people, the, the further along in practice we go, the more important that investigation of, of who am I, who is this person I think I am, who is this, and to really keep reiterating that it's unfindable, it's unfindable. That everything we want to build it up into being is unfindable. That all the things we'd like to uh, uh, glue onto it, there's nothing to glue onto. And all of the whatevers that we'd like to aggregate around it, there is no center. To really see that who we think we are is unfindable is a place of great liberation, is a place of great freedom. It is not saying, I'm a zero, I'm nothing, I don't exist. That would be stupid. Don't be stupid. You know? You know? I don't exist. That's the classic answer. People come in and say, oh, I'm empty, I'm void. I'm, and some teacher whacks them on the head and says, is that true? We can't say that. On the other hand, we're unfindable. On the other hand, I'm responsible for these hands. And so it is the paradox that we have to hold in our awareness, the texture of our lives. We're unfindable, and yet here we are responsible for this. It's part of the texture. Awareness includes knowing and not knowing. It doesn't include just knowing. That's what we all tend to think of, is that we think of awareness as knowing. Okay, I'm aware of what I know. It's a very limited view of knowing. Being aware of what we don't know is by far the larger of the two awarenesses. You're aware of the, being aware of the space around knowing. It's something we see. We all, all have had direct experience of in Sashen. The spaciousness of our own being. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the spacious mind. We've talked about space inside, space is not inside, outside. We've talked about space has no boundary. We have to talk about space has no source. Talk about space is infinitely deep, infinitely wide. Space is untouchable and you know, all that stuff that we've all gone on and on about. But the direct experience is always, always, always fundamentally a space. And as I mentioned to a few people, when you think about all these thoughts that are such a problem, you know, the thoughts have got all this space in them. You know, I am thinking. It's the space between the I and the am, between the am and the thinking that actually allows the words to be there. You know, if they were all just blurred together, you wouldn't be able to think it. It's just <laughs> There's space everywhere. All of our troublesome thoughts and worries, just space. Likewise, all the things that we're just grabbing a hold of. Space. When we really see how spacious things are, there's a place of liberation. Everybody has seen that. Not everybody has recognized that. So everybody has seen all these things I'm pointing out, but 
the recognition of, oh, oh, oh. We actually recognize them not as an intellectual construct, not as a, <clears throat> a good idea, not as something to be written down in a book, but we actually recognize it as, as this, as this. That's a lot of impact. We recognize that awareness is always present. We're never separate from awareness. How many times have we said that during session? Just keep, we keep looking and thinking, well, gee, is awareness present now? 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 Is awareness? We can't get away from it. But the recognition that there is always awareness is a profound recognition. Please, just recognize what you already know. So resting right here, sitting in your own place. And you take a deep breath. You take a deep breath and you let it out long and slow. And as you let it out, you become very, very still. And do that three times. Now that stillness has no particular location. Quality of stillness, your body might be still, but inside there's also a stillness of that which is looking. Feel the stillness that's in your body. We're sitting completely still, Feel that the only thing moving is a little bit of heartbeat, a little bit of breath, and there is stillness. Feel, experience the space of that stillness, the space inside the body. There is no dividing line between your head and your heart. There is no point of demarcation between your chest and your belly. There is no barrier between your legs and your pelvis, between your pelvis and your thorax your thorax, your cranium. Look inside and see it's all one seamless space. Experientially. Holding completely still and looking at this space. If there's any sense of lumps Bumps, cracks, barriers. Look into them and see 
the space in you permeates them. You are filled with space in all those hard places inside of you are spacious. And with your mind's eye, pour space into space. Awareness into awareness. Space is awareness, not the words. Space and awareness, one thing. And now with your eyes closed, expand that sense of space to this whole room. The space in this room and the space in you, one space. And any apparent or suggested barriers are just filled with space. Feel the spaciousness of your own life. Feel the spaciousness of your own body as it breathes, and that space continues into the room. Relax and feel the space of the whole room, the space of your life. Space into space. Awareness into awareness. Your awareness of this whole room, your awareness of this whole body, your awareness of the sounds, the sensations is just awareness. Pour awareness into awareness, space into space. Breathe fully, space into space. You have no boundaries. There is no boundary. There is just space. This is not a matter of effort. It's a matter of looking. It's a matter of awareness. we really truly look at how much space there is, we see that we are space, we are awareness, and that our body is space and awareness and very inclusive. This room becomes our body. Now, each of us have had different kinds of experiences during the course of this short retreat. We've had different kinds of insights. What's important now is that those insights begin to permeate what we think of as our regular life they begin to permeate, to apply, to penetrate, to be brought into our habits of mind. If we have a glimpse of space like we just did, we have a glimpse of the insubstantiality of thought, if we have a glimpse of, <clears throat> of all things are simply 
flowing through and not fixed, then we, we take those insights, those recognitions that we have, and we apply them to our relationships. We apply them to our habits of eating. We apply them to our projects. We apply them to our confidence. It is when the insights of Sushin begin to permeate, to penetrate, to inform, to infuse, to awaken. Our daily life is when Sushin and our daily life become just part of a continuum, one thing. And we find that the habits that have bound us in our daily life begin to have some loosening. This is not going to change your DNA. You know, it's not going to change the fact that you're, you know, four and a half feet tall, obviously. But the habits of mind that we, <clears throat> how we use our particular DNA, our particular height, our particular gender, that there's a lot of space in it. The world is not as rigid as we think we are. We are not as rigid as the world thinks we are. And when we can see this space, and this space begins to permeate into the habits of our daily life, that's where practice gets really exciting. So it's important to recognize, to recognize, to bring to mind, to use as the metacognitive awareness of our own experience. So that when we transition to something else, some other phase, we don't just say, oh, well, I've been there, done that, that's nice, forget it. I'm not going to go to the movies. But that we actually take the wisdom that we have <coughs> encountered in our own being and we apply the wisdom that we have encountered to our life. Not as shoulds and oughts, although it's certainly appropriate to be be ethical, that's very, but to apply the deeper wisdoms that we have all touched, to make our life begin to reflect the deeper wisdoms. In the transmission of the light, the next story is Upagupta. We had a uh, person who was part of our sangha here for a while who said that if she ever had a baby, she wanted to name it Upagupta. I think that she never had a baby, but <laughs> here's the story from the from Dinkoroku. Uh, Upagupta attended Chanavasa for three years. He attended as a, as a as an attendant in the in the old old days. Uh, they they say that the 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 senior ordained monks would go on alms rounds and they would have an attendant behind them. So people would make offerings to the ordained monk. And the ordained monk's responsibility, of course, is to accept whatever is offered. But if people were offering them a whole lot of stuff, they couldn't carry everything. They had to accept everything and they would put it, give it to their attendant. And uh, I, I heard from uh, Ajahnamaro when he used to come that that was the case in Thailand. That the monks would go out on Pendipat, they'd go out on alms rounds. People would give them you know, a case of 
white bread. And they wouldn't have to carry around the whole case of white bread. They'd have to accept it. But then they would pass it on to their attendants, who actually probably had a cart or something who would carry it for them. And then, of course, it is the case that as, as a spiritual person, our task is if somebody is freely offering something, then out of their own generosity and kindness, you accept it. You think, thank you. I really appreciate it. This comes from your heart. But then what you do with it has to be whatever is skillful. You accept whatever comes to you out of somebody's heart, but you don't necessarily need to do exactly what they thought you were going to do with it. So I remember Mayazumi Roshi, a classic story, is somebody came to him with great solemnity and great pomp and ceremony and gave him this beautifully wrapped package. And, and Mayazumi Roshi said, thank you very much. This is very kind of you. I really appreciate this. And then he turned and gave it away to somebody else. So in that particular case, it was a lesson in, uh, in his own lesson in this person's uh, pomp and grandeur, how, how not important it was. So what we do with the gift has to be skillful, has to be, has to be ethical, has to be in accord with the highest principles, but not necessarily what the gift was, the, the, the intention in the person's mind. If we accept the gift with that intention, of course we have to follow through. But if somebody gives you $100 thinking you're going to go out and buy chocolate for everybody, and you say, no, I don't think that's the most skillful thing to do with this $100. I'm going to put it in the priest fund. Then you, you do what's skillful in that regard. That's a complete side aside. <laughs> Upagupta attended Chanavasa for three years. Then finally shaved his head and became a mendicant. Became an ordained person. Chanavasa asked him, Chanavasa was the teacher here, are you leaving home physically or mentally? Are you being ordained with your mind or with your body? You're taking the step with your mind or your body. And Upagupta said, Upagupta said, actually, I am leaving home with my body. I am, I am leaving home physically. Shanavasa said, what has the supreme truth of the Buddhas to do with mind or body? On hearing this, Upagupta was enlightened. Upagupta was from the peasant caste. He called on Shanavasa when he was 15 years old, became a mendicant when he was 17, and realized enlightenment when he was 22. Um, in his teaching travels, Upagupta came to Mathura. Mathura is a place up in, um, uh, oh, I can't think of the name, HP, up north in northern India. Uh, <coughs> came to uh, Mathura, where those who attained salvation, that became enlightened, those who were enlightened were very numerous. Because of this, the, 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 whenever anyone attained realization, Upagupta would cast a talisman, four fingers in breadth, into a cave. The cave was 18 cubits by 12 cubits and was filled with talismans. That's how many people attained enlightenment. Upagupta uh, was a, uh, apparently a real person, a real person in northern India, about 100 years or so after the the Buddha's enlightenment sometime around the time of King Asoka. Um, Upagupta was a single person. Upagupta became an ordained person and was a teacher. Upagupta, uh, his teaching 
and the people he connected with were so numerous that his legacy has extended all the way down, not only in our little lineage chart, but there's a whole cult of Upagupta in Southeast Asia to this day, you know, 2,000 some years after his time. Um, <clears throat> Bodhidharma, so the legend goes, at age 100, spent three years coming from India, South, South India to China. These people had intention. They did something with their lives. When this body comes out of the great mystery, when this world that we inhabit comes out of the great mystery, it doesn't come out as a frozen piece of crystal. It comes out active. It comes out in motion. This body is in constant motion. This mind is in constant motion. This mind and body has a direction. We are born as a baby in that direction. We mature. We become an adult. We grow old. We die. It has a direction. There's an evolutionary direction that happens. It may be empty. It may be unfindable. But if we look directly at our lives, there's a direction to this emptiness, unfindability. Well, Upagupta, when he became ordained, Shanavasta asked him, well, what are you leaving home with? He said, I'm leaving home with my body. Shanavasta says, what does the Buddha Dharma have to do with body or mind? What does the Buddha Dharma not have to do with body and mind? How could you not leave home with your body? How could you not be ordained without a body? This transmission, whether it be a transmission of Bodhidharma spending three years coming from southern India and then sitting for nine years in a cave in China, or whether the transmission be this young person, Upagupta, becoming ordained and then practicing, maturing. He may have been enlightened at age 21, but nobody, nobody, there's no shortcut to spiritual maturity. So I don't care what his state of mind was, he still had to go through some really difficult times to become a mature person. These people had intention. And their intention, their practice, was a practice of wholeheartedness, of oneness, of body and mind. And that integrity, that integrity of alignment, that integrity of alignment from the inside to the outside of becoming ordained with the whole body and mind can move mountains. If one becomes a mother or father and we're only half-heartedly doing it, then you have a half-hearted relationship. If we become a photographer, and we're a photographer with our whole body and mind, that makes a difference. I used to think about the, name just slipped my mind, uh, Rodin. I used to think about Rodin's thinker, you know? And you know, this is the guy all, and I remember when I was younger, I used to think, oh, this is kind of ridiculous, you know? It's the difference in Buddhism and Rodin's thinker is, you know, he's all in his head, and Buddhism is all about being wholeheartedly engaged. But when I saw it in, in Paris recently, I realized, oh, 
He's thinking with his entire body and mind. His whole body, his whole mind is one thing. It's not some head thing. It's the whole being is thinking. When we do something with our whole being, we become a photographer, a, a politician. We raise one child. We raise one vow. We write one musical piece. We, do, we, we invent one light bulb. When we have integrity, when our body-mind is in line with our vow, we're going to do something. And that something that we do is important. And that something that we do is important for us, but important for the world. Raising one child with integrity, when your whole being is doing its inadequate best, it's always inadequate, makes a difference. Doing one job, Edison said that genius is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration, 99% just continual investment, continual engagement. Becoming one unmuddled person. Becoming one person who says, in this life, I want to grow raspberries. In this life, I want to grow squash. I want to grow the biggest squash I can grow. I want to grow the juiciest, ripest, most nutritious, whatever. Anybody who, who looks at their life and says, this is what I put my hand to. This is what I put my hand to. I will do my inadequate best to walk that path. And everybody here has a particular path that they're walking even as we speak or sit or listen. The integrity of body and mind coming together and doing something wholeheartedly is part of what the manifestation, what the actualization of our spiritual practices. So we take the insights that we have from Sashin, we take our deepest wisdom, we take our biggest heart, and we infuse our life with that. And then we take the current of that life and make it alive. And it may be that our calling is to make cabinets. It may be that our calling is to paint walls. It may be that our calling is to lay concrete. It may be that our calling is to write books or symphonies or to heal people. The, the power of integrity of a body-mind that is one thing, we cannot know. We cannot know. It may be that if we have children, our grandchildren change the world. One grandchild, just like Bodhidharma comes from India to China or Upagupta, starts teaching, and Upagupta's influence goes down for 2,000 years to the cult of Upagupta in Southeast Asia. Or Bodhidharma's influence goes down for 1,000 years, 1,500 years to us. 
So as we continue practice here, continue sitting in our own seat, continue with our own spacious mind, and that mind infuses our behavior, and our behavior has integrity to it, has integrity to it with respect for other people, it has integrity to it that the wisdom that we have, we try to, to use it in as wide and deep and long as possible, that it has integrity in the, by cultivating the open heart of respect, appreciation, and love. Then, our practice makes enormous difference in the world. The three worlds, the past, present, and future, or form, formless, and desire, whatever way you count the three worlds, are aligned right here, right now, in this life. And it is important. And it is vital. Please have great confidence. Have great confidence. We do not know. There's so much we do not know. But we can endeavor to do is to have this kind of integrity of body-mind, of intention. And so we often talk about making a vow, about aligning all the parts of us in a vow, and having our life have have that vow, have integrity. Please, this is not about a little week that we have all gone and worked together. It's true. It comes and it goes. But it's really about something much more fundamental. It's really about the trajectory of our life, the wisdom that we bring to that trajectory and the heart of compassion that it unfolds with. Please take good care. Have good faith.